Hey friends, long time no see, haven't uploaded much over the last couple of weeks on this YouTube channel, so I thought an AMA might be a really cool way to re-engage and provide a little bit of value. I asked y'all on Twitter if you would have 10 questions for me to answer and you over-delivered. Got over 20 questions across all different sorts of topics, so super happy to dive in. Three, two, one. Number one comes from Andrea Badjo. And Andrea asks, how does SEO look like in three to six to 12 months when you land a new job or start a new project in an agency versus startup versus enterprise environment? Now, that is a question that could fill probably a whole book. So I'll try to keep it concise. First of all, there's a great book out there by Michael Watkins called The First 90 Days. Find a link in the show notes, of course, that gives a great framework that helps you navigate a new job or maybe even a new project and really make sure you steer towards success. It was certainly helpful in all my gigs and I still refer to that today. The second one, when it comes to agency versus startup versus enterprise, there's some commonalities and some differences. So the commonality is that in any case, you want to look for impact and driving results as quickly as possible. You want to identify the big problems to tackle and you want to focus on building relationships. So far, so good for the commonalities. Now, when it comes to the differences, you want to, on the startup side, really want to make sure that you understand the resources. What can you even do? What's available to you? You want to focus on building growth loops and systems. So that's obviously a very deep topic, but look for building reinforcing systems and structures. And then um, try to take a step back and look at the product market fit, what really drives product adoption and how you can connect to that. Like how can you add value to that, right? Whether it's through SEO or something else. On the agency side, you first want to understand the client relationships. What's the status? Are all relationships okay? Or are some maybe not so okay? And what clients really need? That is also, by the way, not always what clients say that they need. Sometimes it's slightly different. So you want to you want to find out those these two parameters, you know, like what's the status quo of all relationships and what what's the value that clients are looking for? And then lastly, on the enterprise side, you want to understand what has been done and what still can be done. Depending on the company you join, a lot of low-hanging fruit have already been harvested not always but sometimes and you want to understand really like what's the history what's the context and then what still can be done where is the growth potential and you also want to understand and learn how things get done so connect with people that get stuff done in the company learn from them and see what the lever is sometimes it's relationships sometimes it's good arguments sometimes it's project briefs sometimes it's something else so identify what that is and pair it with the first thing, which is what can still be done. And that should set you up for success. Question number two comes from my good buddy, Egal Stolpner. And he asks, which logging fruit do you spot most often when checking out new sites? perhaps divided into small, SaaS, and large and inventory-based sites. First of all, I think when it comes to spotting potential low-hanging fruit, it comes to, to SEO. That's my, my guess from this question. On the SMB side, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit often in just titles, meta titles, optimizing those, testing meta titles, refining them over time. Big low-hanging fruit doesn't take a lot of resources, but has high impact. For SaaS companies, something that I often observe is that there are no or not enough landing pages for different personas, industries, or features. With most refined products, and don't, don't quote me on the exact number, right? But I would assume that you can build out at least 15 to 20 landing pages that address all different angles and, and aspects 
of a product. And then for aggregators, which I used to call inventory-based sites and, and I adopted this term from, from Ben Thompson, uh, for aggregators, I think index management is a big one. So getting low quality content out of Google's index or even better, you know, making sure you don't even have low quality content, right? It goes both ways. Those are some of the most low-hanging fruit that I have observed. Alex B asks, if you could go back five years and say one thing to your past as yourself, what would it be? Wow, uh, what a question, big one. I think it's always difficult because, you know, like think about like going back and solving some problems or getting creating the awareness for some things could then lead to missing awareness for other things, right? So it's kind of a tricky question, but I understand what, what it implies, right? And so my, my answer is that there would be three things. First thing is test everything. Don't just replicate what you read on the internet, but make sure you develop a testing culture, a testing repository, and, and kind of create this unique experience. You know, I think I, I was very lucky in my career to have worked with some bigger companies and brands that allowed me to learn fast and then take that knowledge to some of the other companies that I worked with or worked for. Number two is is I would urge myself to separate distractions from impact. And we're really big about this at Shopify is to like really think about, okay, does this help me achieve my goal or not? Yes or no, black or white and make no compromises. And number three is build that personal brand, man. Uh, I should have invested earlier into publicly blogging, uh, speaking, podcasting, YouTubing. That would have certainly given me you know, a bit of a leg up today. Next question, Mr. Brian Harnish asks, what is your most complex enterprise SEO project aside from Shopify? And did this project use Shopify? Probably not. I worked with quite a lot of companies out there. No major enterprise Shopify brand just yet. And I think in general, my biggest enterprise or most complex enterprise SEO project was probably G2. And it's because there were so many different growth loops going on. Obviously, SEO plays a huge role for G2 because users find software reviews through Google. So for those who don't know, G2 is a B2B software marketplace slash review site, and it acquires new users through SEO, right? People find those in search results, they come to the site, and then they leave another review, which creates a self-enforcing loop. And that loop is paired with a sales loop. So there's a sales organization at G2 that then sells the insights from these interactions and, and just software insights in general to other enterprise companies. And so I think getting that, getting those two loops to, uh, to optimally interact with each other and, and integrate with each other took me a while to figure out. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, G2, and of course, did not use Shopify, but Shopify is on G2. And I think we do pretty well in the category. Jeremy Rivera asks, when you already have your keyword list and, and its volumes and organic CTR loosely based on traffic potential, how do you create estimates or forecasts that are useful versus unrealistic or impossible? Do you map growth to your new content publishing schedule or expected gains from on-site? Real quick, Jeremy was super engaged on the, on, the, on the tweet and asked four questions. To keep it focused, I will reserve the other three for the next AMA. My usual step-by-step -step process for forecasting traffic potential is to to start with a custom clicker, the tons of manuals out there, I'll link in the show notes too. You basically export your data from GSC, make sure that you aggregate the different click-through rates per position, and then take the average of that to get a custom clicker, which I strongly recommend everybody to do. Step two is you wanna set up three different scenarios, a, an optimistic, a neutral, and conservative scenario. Step number three, you wanna define a high-level roadmap 
of when you roll things out and what their impact is over the year so that you have an understanding of whether that traffic estimation is achievable. Number four is you want to spread the traffic potential over that time range, right? So when you have your click curve and you want to say, hey, these are the keywords and that's their search volume, you have your three different scenarios, right? Maybe the one, the optimistic scenario is rank position one to three, the neutral one is position three to six, and then the conservative is position seven to 10. And, and then you identify the projects you launch over the year, then you want to spread that traffic potential over those different months and connect them to the things that you're launching. And then lastly, number five, that's often forgotten is to monitor and adjust your forecast. Certainly a mistake that I made in my career where I had my forecast and then at some point I diverged from that forecast and I didn't do anything about it. And that's a huge mistake, right? You want to go back and make sure that when you diverge, like what are the reasons, what are the drivers, but then re-forecast to see where you come out based on that new data, right? It's all about that Bayesian mindset. Nikhil Raj asks, when SEO traffic is almost flatlined with no growth for more than six months, what should I do differently? Where to go for ideas? I have three parts to that answer. First one is you want to look for technical issues, look for SEO hygiene, go into the coverage section in Google Search Console and see if there's any any glaring issues. A lot of sites grow to a certain point and then they accrue enough SEO debt or SEO issues, their further growth is hindered. So you want to see are there any technical issues? Number two is you want to understand what prevents new content from growing or is old content declining? And this is of course where we have to differentiate a little bit between different business models and who creates content in your business model at all, when we assume that you create content yourself, then you have to ask yourself, like, how long does new content take to rank? And is there any issue that prevents it from unfolding its maximum potential? Or am I basically treading water where I cannot create new content fast enough to outweigh the decline of older content? And then number three is you want to compare against your competitors. I think it's always a good idea to, from time to time, do a reality check and see how do I stack up in terms of links, UX, content against my strongest competitors. Plaque Theme asks, as a startup, should you first invest in SEO or paid ads? Good question. I hear that a ton. And the answer is it depends. <laughs> depends on your product. So for some startups, SEO is their core growth drivers and they have to invest in it from day one. And for other companies, it's something to add on top of your channel stack way later on in the company or product lifecycle. Product like Salesforce, for example, very sales driven. Um, there are tons of other growth loops that they can leverage before SEO. And then years down the road, it's something to think about. Another example, Atlassian, right? Atlassian basically grew 15 years in a product-led way before SEO was consciously added on top of that. So you first have to ask yourself, you know, what is the business model? What is the product? What is the market? And is SEO the best channel to go after? If you have inventory to expose to Google, right? When we talk about aggregators, so any kind of e-commerce inventory or any data you aggregate or any user-generated content that you can expose. In this case, you certainly want to invest in SEO early on. We already spoke about who creates the content and then you want to think about what is the customer lifetime value uh, and how does that stand in relation to customer acquisition cost. So when you have super low lifetime value or ARPU, average revenue uh, per user, if that's super low, 
then you probably cannot spend or afford to spend a lot of money on paid loop or paid campaigns. It might also be hard for you to invest in sales. And so then SEO is certainly a great channel. And lastly, that's it should have actually been the first point, but you always want to ask yourself, do I have product market fit yet? You know, do I have a strong word of mouth distribution or people coming directly to my site before I invest in, in paid ads or SEO? If that's the case, then yes, uh, go back to all the steps that I mentioned before. But if that's not the case, then it's probably not the right time yet to invest strongly in either of those channels. You first want to make sure you really have solid product market fit. David Fellarm asks about my opinion about a tweet from Brian Tom that says, if there's anything I learned from this post, it said SEO is like talking about the idea of SEO rather than actually doing it. Search landscape is always changing, adapt or get out. Time spent complaining is better spent working. Kind of true, there's certainly some truth here. I do agree that we have to adapt or die. Uh, I also agree that SEOs like speaking about SEO, which uh, I don't know, it's kind of a meta moment because I'm doing exactly the thing. But I also spend some time actually doing SEO. And I think I think it's important to talk about SEO. And I think one thing that we over index on is that we like talk talking about tactics, not enough about models, concepts, and strategy. And it's something I'm trying to balance out a little bit, you know, it's not that I that I carry that responsibility necessarily, but I certainly have a lot of conceptual content out there, but it has helped me become more agnostic to tactics and basically find the right tactics for the right situation. Nick Swan asks, how can I grow SEOtest.com with a bootstrapped budget? Man, there are a couple of things. First of all, you want to stay super close to your customers. I think that's actually do something that you do fairly well. And you want to constantly get feedback on what they like and whatnot. There's the qualitative research where you actually talk to people and ask them straight up, you know, what do you like? What do you hate? What, what do you wish this could be? Um, and then there's the data side of it. You should measure engagement in your platform. You should understand in a data-driven way what features your customers most engage with. You should find some way to measure success, right? Maybe that's the number of uh, completed SEO tests, or maybe that's something else. And then you should do everything to drive that number up. And then lastly, maybe build in public. This is just a suggestion. I, you know, you have to consider their pros and cons to building in public, but I've seen a lot of success, especially with bootstrapped companies. And what basically means is to document your progress, document what people say. I think Buffer is a great example of that. They even publish all their revenue numbers, any kind of cash flow numbers, which is pretty stunning. But maybe even just a tweet here and there of like showing people what you're building, what you're thinking about can be very powerful. You know, like there's an audience out there. And if that audience gives you feedback for free, uh, that's that's pretty dope. Jose Luis Hernando asks, what areas do you think SEOs do not spend enough time talking or researching about? Jose, you also asked three questions and I love that. I'll reserve the right to answer one question this one question here and then save the other two, uh, two for the next AMA. Please keep it up. Don't let me hold you back on asking questions. So a couple of things. I think on the one hand, we don't talk enough about traffic volatility. The sheer fact that a, a site can lose traffic within a core update and then get that traffic back six months later without changing anything, that is probably something we don't talk about enough. That's sort of an awareness that we have to create and goes back to this idea that traffic can be very volatile and that traffic is not guaranteed. And there, it doesn't mean that you do something. It just simply means that either Google adjusts some ranking signals or that Google updates its natural language understanding. I think that's something that we SEOs don't, don't like to talk about because it shows that there's something we don't have control of. Alex Friedman asks, SEO tips every early stage founder should know. Let me give you three. First one is the point at which you should invest in SEO depends heavily on your product customers and monetization. I spoke about this before, but not every startup needs to do SEO. 
first find product market fit, then find product channel fit or channel market fit, and then iterate from there. Number two, the best way to use SEO is when you have users or suppliers creating the content for you, and you basically just work on optimizing it and optimize how it's served to Google. And number three, very narrow tip, but if you blog, blog on your own site. Don't use Medium. I mean, nothing against Medium uh, per se. I think it's a great platform. I, I, want, I want them to succeed. I just think that if you want to distribute content on Medium, you want to use their import function, which automatically gives you a so-called canonical tag, um, which means that on Google search, your blog ranks at the top, but the Medium users will still see your content. I think that's kind of the optimal mix. I'm saying that because you want to build out a destination as soon as possible in your product's career or brand career and not, not build too much on other platforms that you can't control and where you cannot really own your content and so on. I'm not saying that Medium you know, is a walled garden and doesn't allow you to do any of these things. I'm just, I'm just thinking that you want to bring any content as close to your landing pages as possible or as close to your platform as possible. Richard Kenny asks, if you had to pick one, what change are you or have you implemented Shopify that you're most excited about? Sorry, Richard, I can't talk about all the specifics. We're really bullish on, on making sure that, you know, we don't give away too many sensitive uh, things, but I also don't want to leave you hanging, man. Actually, one point that I'm super happy about is uh, building and forming a super team. The opportunity at Shopify is huge. To go after the opportunity, we need the best people. Like, the best. And so super blessed to work with tons of talented people. I'm very proud and, and happy of how we work together to building that team out, to building a strong team, you know, a close team uh, and a team that performs. Stefan Ripin asks, how can you grow in a competitive industry without buying links? Depends a little bit on the industry that you're in, uh, how competitive it is, but having a technically sound infrastructure and of course outstanding content goes a very, very long way. And I think there's very often more to squeeze out. Not always can you win against backlinks. There are some, some niches and some industries where backlinks are super important. And then the question is, what's the natural way for you to drive links uh, instead of buying them necessarily? I also urge you to optimize your snippets. I think that's another very underutilized lever that many SEOs have. And then track what users find valuable on your site. You know, when we think about content, I think about content as a product. And when I think about content as a product, I think about the key feature that people are looking for could be a piece of information. You want to go back and, and really understand what is the, the key feature that people want? How can you help them get there faster and or in a more efficient way? I really try to get a map of interactions where all the different things that people interact with on your website and see you know how often it is accomplished and if there's maybe better ways to optimize this. That goes into the, the idea of optimizing for the user experience beyond core web vitals or mobile friendliness. And I think that's a, that's a very important way. If you offer something that's superior to what's out there, then people will seek you out automatically and they will seek you out in the search results. And that will certainly reflect positively on SEO. Shiraz Khan asks, where is the industry headed? Will SEO be a thing in five years? I do think SEO will be a thing in five years. I don't see any major threats on the horizon for Google besides regulation. I don't think another company really comes close. And even regulation might actually entrench Google more than destroy it. I also don't see anything like ver voice search replacing 
SEO or all of a sudden, you know, becoming this overnight threat to SEO and textual search. I think we're still, you know, quite some time away from that. And I still think that, or I, not only I think the data proves that SEO for most industries is still the most valuable traffic channels. I do strongly think that SEO will be a thing in five years. I think it, it is becoming more complex. I think it's it's more competitive because the barrier to entry is lower than, than ever before. Everybody can create content. This is no news, right? But the bar for building strong brands is getting higher. I think SEOs should be really close to product market fit and how that's generated and then capitalize on that. So I'm not expecting any major interferences in SEO, at least at least today. You know, I think maybe toward the end of this year, maybe I think differently about it. But now I just think it, it will keep going in the same trajectory as it has been in the last five years, which means more machine learning, higher complexity, more testing that we have to do instead of this kind of dogmatic blueprint approach where we think we know what actually moves the needle, but but actually don't. Florentin asks, have you ever tried reverse engineering Google algorithms to know how they actually work? Kind of, right? I think every SEO should be doing that all the time, but also acknowledge that you'll probably never get there, right? Search and the algorithms have become so complex and so refined that it's impossible to reverse engineer, but the endeavor itself is worth it. The closest that I ever got was at search metrics where we had ranking factor correlation studies. So we're basically trying to identify the biggest ranking factors. And even though these studies are not perfect, they still provide some value. And I learned a lot about just ranking signals by, by going through those motions. I think SEO today is almost like medicine where we have to really develop bodies of research to learn more about what works, you know? Even something like title optimization, which is probably as basic as it gets in SEO. You know, there, there are lots of assumptions out there that are untested, even in title length, for example. In my opinion, there is way more to squeeze out of that but test for ourselves and learn for ourselves. Grant Simmons asks, where do good ideas come from? Can we train our brains to be idea machines, big or small? I think, yes, creative thinking is a muscle you can build. And when we think about muscles, I'm thinking about repetitions. The question there is, how often do you think creatively? Do you set time aside for ideation? I certainly do. I certainly block some time in my calendar to, to just think about ideation. You know, I think a lot of our days is very structured, very task oriented. And it's very healthy to step back from that and just let your mind wander and see where it goes, right? It's almost almost like a meditation, but in a positive constraint that is the business context. And so there are a couple of, of methods that I like to use to spur my creative thinking. First one is inversion. What would the opposite look like? Uh, or what if the opposite was true? And the second one is scale. What would that look like if it was very, very small, or what would it look like if it was very, very big? And the last one is the five times why method, which I'm sure you're familiar with. You just basically ask five times why, and then you very often hit kind of the limitations of your understanding and just diving deeper into that always helps me come up with some creative ideas. Michael asks, the most persistent piece of SEO advice out there that you flat out disagree with? Huh, there are actually a couple. The one that I would pick out is probably that page speed is a major ranking signal. I know that Google declared page speed, quote unquote, however you define that, right, which gets deeper into the problem, as a ranking factor. So speed is a factor. The question is how big it is. And I think in my mind, it's relatively small. I think it's a big one for conversion optimization for sure. But even there, it depends on the industry you're in. So I think for example, that speed is a much bigger factor in e-commerce 
than say in the SaaS industry. It's tough to measure speed, depends on the device, the country you're calling from, your uh, internet connection. It, uh, there's, there's so many factors. There's not this one speed, right? There are many different metrics to measure, which is why Google came up with Core Web Vitals. But even then, I think that there is a, a minimum threshold under which people bounce because the, the page or site loads too slowly. If the incentive to wait until the page is loaded is big enough, if you really want to find something out, you'll wait. And then speed is not the biggest issue. So I think there's a lot of unclarity and, and that unclarity leads us to over-index on, on speed as a sheer ranking signal. Age of Frost asks the last question, which is what leads to a healthy SEO team culture and does healthy evolve with the company stage or size? I love that question, Ajem. So I think there are two things to a healthy culture. One is I believe that people want to do meaningful work and they want to build meaningful relationships while they do it. Like uh, how close to meaningful are you? And that's probably different for everyone, but there are probably also some commonalities. Number two is that what people would consider, what I would consider this idea of one team. I think in the early stages of a team, people tend to compete with each other a little bit. You know, it's almost like imagine you, you enter maybe you join like a basketball team, right? And then I think in the very early stages, you're like, where do I fit in there? Am I like kind of the, the strongest horse in the stall? Or And then at the stage after that, when you think about team members as allies, that's super strong, right? When, when you have the feeling that other people have my back, right? You support each other. You truly care for each other. This is the idea of one team. That is very healthy and it takes a while to get there. But there are four different stages that teams go through. Forming, norming, storming, and performing all teams that, that come together go through these different stages and all these come with different signs, right? Like conflict, for example, is hard to avoid uh, when, when teams are on their way to performing. And that leads me to the third thing. I think a healthy team culture embraces clean disagreements and clean conflict. It's important to disagree, right? If, you, if everybody just agrees all the time, honestly, probably a red flag. But if you can debate in a healthy context, that is very healthy and that's very powerful. And the last one is clear responsibilities and goals. If everybody on the team can tell and explain what the strategy is, what the goals are, and what their responsibility is, that is certainly a signal of a team culture. And of course, it evolves with the company stage and size. Absolutely, right? It's if, if you even think about the responsibilities of a team in a startup, they have way more responsibilities, right? They have to be way more scrappy and lean and and almost like generalists than that same team in an enterprise context where you have dedicated teams for all different roles and responsibilities. So that dynamic changes over time, also changes as new members come on the team or old members leave. And so I think you constantly want to refine what healthy looks like, very similar to how the culture of a whole company changes. There was this one thing I learned, I forgot where, but it's basically the gist of every new employee changes the culture just a little bit. And I think the same applies to a team. And a certain churn is normal for various reasons. It's not always a bad thing, unless you lose most of your team, right? But teams evolve and teams progress. If you have a very strong uh, team culture, then new members quickly adapt to that kind of and become part of that and if it's a very unhealthy culture then every new member more or less just disrupts that you kind of want to move through these four stages that i that i mentioned earlier as quickly as possible but you cannot skip any of these pages and each of those come with different challenges and, and milestones uh, so it's a concept that i'll link to in the show notes as well and with that, we are at the end. Those were a lot of questions. Those were really good questions. If you like that, leave a comment below and feel free to share this, of course, on social media or wherever you, you feel like this is share worthy. Super happy to do this again if there's an interest. So let me know if you like me, uh, if you like me to do this again and I'll see you at the next time. 
three, two, one.